Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. How do Christians approach other faiths? This morning we have a strange story before us. Magi come from the east to bring gifts and honor the infant Jesus. Now we're used to thinking about three kings, but the text doesn't give a number. And we settled on three because there were three gifts. And since one of the gifts was gold, the Magi became kings. But the text uses just one word, magi, like the word magic. A good friend of mine from seminary, the Reverend Matthew Wright, pointed out in his weekly email to his congregation that magician is a word often used in scripture for condemnation. Magicians, astrologers, practitioners of sorcery, they were outsiders to good Jews. This sense of insiders and outsiders was big in the Jewish religion of Jesus' time. It's an odd story we have before us. You get a sense of that tension of insiders and outsiders in Paul's lesson, in his reading, when he says that he's trying to convince the people it's okay to have these Gentiles with us. There's tension there about inside and outside. And so today we're confronted with a surprise. These magicians, these outsiders, recognize the true light. They follow the star and it leads them to the infant Jesus. Not only that, but they know that Herod, the king, is not to be trusted. These magicians are able to discern the truth. Matthew's story would have surprised Jesus' religious contemporaries. God's people were suspicious of outsiders like these. Which brings me back to my initial question. How do Christians relate to other faiths? How do we approach other faiths? And perhaps some of you were brought up in a church tradition that taught exclusivism. The idea is probably the best-known Christian opinion. Exclusivism holds that no one outside the Christian faith can be saved. Exclusivists tend to have a very afterlife-focused vision of salvation as well. Christians go to heaven. Everyone else goes to the other place. Some versions of Christianity even teach that you must ascribe to their particular brand of Jesus-following if you hope to see the inside of the pearly gates. When I was in college, one of my theology professors, a particularly wry-witted nun and Pauline scholar, sent us home with a final paper. I don't remember the assignment exactly, and I can't tell you what I wrote about, but I remember the topic a friend chose. This 19-year-old college freshman was going through a particularly evangelical phase He'd been arguing with the professor all semester as she brought an academic approach to scripture. And for his final paper, he argued that Mother Teresa was in hell. (laughs) The writer he cited claimed that we knew this definitively as Protestants. And my friend showed me the paper when he got it back from the professor. 
I'd never seen someone write an F in bright red all the way across the front of a paper before. I believe she also wrote the words lies and heresy. And that may seem harsh, and it was. He ended up rewriting the paper on a completely different topic with academically rigorous sources and passed the class. But I tell the story to illustrate a point. Perhaps the most loudly heard voices in Christianity have held similar views to my friend and his paper about Mother Teresa. The exclusivist vision of Christianity has often held sway. I've not had the chance, but someday I'd like to get sit down with an earnest exclusivist and ask, what do you do with the Magi? How do you account for this story in the Gospel? These mystical heretics from the East that came to pay homage to Jesus, they're but one moment among many in Scripture that make me uncomfortable with exclusivist claims. Karl Rahner, the German Catholic theologian, had another approach. Rahner coined the idea of the anonymous Christian in response to the old question, what about someone who dies never having heard of Jesus? Rahner replied that it was possible for someone to live a Christ-like life, Christ -like life without using Christian language. And since Rahner's time, others have applied this formula beyond Rahner's original question about someone who hasn't heard of Jesus. They see this as a way of, of thinking of an inclusivist way to look at the faith. We don't have to feel bad for our good Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu friends. If they live good lives, in the end, God will count them as unwitting Christians and explain it all to them after they die. I've just given you a summary, which is dangerous to do, especially with a German theologian. Rahner's own brother said that it was better to read Rahner in English translation than in the original German, because then at least one person had already struggled to interpret Rahner's dense text. But the summary, I think, is a fair one of a common Christian approach to those of other faiths that originates around the time of Karl Rahner. Do we see good people of other faiths as wrong in their choice of language, even if their actions are ethical? I raised the question about other faiths today partly because we are performing the second half of an interreligious wedding. <laughs> Brian and Meg were supposed to be married by both a priest and a rabbi, but then the priest wasn't able to attend. Now, this is an atypical couple in many ways, most people don't get married during a Sunday service, and most brides who show up at their weddings pregnant tend to try to hide their bellies, but we're way past that point with Meg. Meg and Brian are atypical in other ways as well. It's rare that you find an interreligious couple who so consciously practice both faiths. When they started coming to Holy Communion, Brian and Meg were intentionally alternating weekends worshiping twice a month at the Central Reform Congregation and twice a month with us here. I, I may have messed that up by assigning Meg to volunteer all the time. <laughs> uh, Brian volunteers for a program with kids 
in the judicial system in St. Louis. He listed me as one of his references. I have to say it was an awkward but funny conversation when the volunteer coordinator called to ask me about Brian. She asked if he taught Sunday school. <laughs> I had to say, no, we don't let Brian teach Sunday school, which could have worried her for a moment. <laughs> I had to quickly qualify that it wasn't because I had any worry about Brian and kids. We didn't ask him to teach because it would be a little awkward asking a Jew to explain Christian teaching to little ones. So I gave him a glowing reference anyway. <laughs> Knowing practitioners of other faiths like Brian, I simply cannot identify with the exclusivist claims that some Christians make. I also have a hard time with Rahner's idea that good people are really Christians anonymously. I find that a little presumptuous. Partly, I'm less anxious about the question of other faiths because the Christian teachers I have learned the most from have tended to emphasize salvation as a question of the here and now, as well as pie in the sky when you win the sweet by and by. Howard Thurman, a sometimes chaplain at Howard University and then at Boston College, where he taught a not yet Dr. King, argued in his seminal book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that a religion focused on the afterlife does little to change the circumstances of the people who live with their backs against the wall. He saw Jesus as a revolutionary figure, interested in turning over the status quo in this life. Salvation was as much a question in the here and now as in the afterlife. But the question of other faiths still beckons. My mentoring rector in Washington, D.C., the Reverend Luis Leon, used to say, I am a Christian because it is in Christianity that I have seen the light shining the brightest. I am a Christian because it is in Christianity that I have seen the light shining the brightest. Those are carefully chosen words. We could use more carefully chosen words coming from Washington, but these ones were chosen well. There's an emphasis on subjectivity in the sentence. Christianity is where I have seen the light shining the brightest. There's also an acknowledgement that I may have seen the light shining in other places. Many of us have wonderful interfaith friendships I have been blessed to attend Friday prayers in Istanbul's Blue Mosque with Turkish Muslim friends. I've whirled with dervishes in Tribeca. I've danced with neighbors in the Simcat Torah service as the scroll of scripture surrounded the synagogue. I've sat silently for zazen in a Buddhist temple in San Francisco. I've even shared a feast with self-identified pagans for Samhain. I've been privileged to catch glimmers in many faith traditions. Among the deaths of 2016, the many deaths of people we lost last year, was a scholar of world religions, Dr. Houston Smith. His book, The World's Religions, is widely assigned by professors, and it's good enough to read even if you're not in college. He studied and befriended people of religions across the world and across his life. He was famous for introducing the Dalai Lama to the West. 
Smith said that through all of his travels, he remained Christian. But for him, God is defined by Jesus, but not confined to Jesus. Smith's work helped us see a way of being Christian that did not study faves for the sake of forming good arguments against them. Houston Smith gave us permission to be dazzled by other religions. For him, faith was a journey, an adventure. You may not agree with me on my perspective on other faiths. You may find yourself in a slightly different place than the pluralistic place of Dr. Houston Smith. And that's okay. I raise the question, how do we approach other faiths today? Partly because of this story. Whatever approach you take, there are some questions I think we can hold. These magi that we're presented with, they're adventurers, journeyers. You get a sense that they're working on a hunch by following this star. You know the old joke about the wise men, yes? How we know that there were three wise men and not a wise woman? Well, if there had been a wise woman, they wouldn't have arrived so long after Christmas. They would have stopped and asked for directions. The joke betrays scripture a bit, and we're going to mess with it by having wise women bringing up gifts in a few moments. But sometimes, sometimes, the detours are the important parts of a journey. Without detours, you miss the adventure. Encountering the Magi, these mystical figures from the East, makes me ask some questions. How do you approach those of other faiths? Do you hope to prove them wrong? Do you come with fear? Or could you come like the Magi approached the baby Jesus? Can you encounter another faith with a sense of adventure? Turn the question back on Christianity. Is your faith an adventure? We live in a time of growing secularism. That is to say, more and more people are leaving the church, leaving the faith. I suspect that for many of them, exclusivism plays a role in the decision. Fewer of us want to be a part of a club that doesn't admit Muslims, Jews, people of other faiths. We've seen too much light in our neighbor's practice to want to shut them out. I wonder as well, if we saw faith less as a series of rote beliefs and exercises, could it be more compelling? What if our faith looked more, felt more like the faith of the Magi? Could we set off, dazzled by the light, not exactly sure where the journey will lead? Do we dare to offer our gifts, to open our hearts, to follow a star that will lead us home by another road? This year, will you come on an adventure of faith? Amen.